Called one of the 50 most influential people in regenerative medicine, Eduardo Bravo is currently the CEO of Nordic Nanovector, a company focused on a unique combo therapy combining a monoclonal antibody with a radiotherapy. He successfully steered the stem cell company Tygenix through a rejected FDA application and re-emerged with a new product portfolio to be successfully acquired in 2018 by Takeda in an all-cash deal valued at over $600 million. Eduardo is also the former president of the trade body, the European Biopharmaceutical Enterprises, EBE, and led several initiatives to help Europe's competitiveness in the biotech sector. Eduardo, it's great to see you. Thank you very much. Nordic Nanovector, it seems you're pushing and pursuing a challenging and exciting combo pathway, a monoclonal antibody combined with a radiotherapy. How's it going? Well, it's going uh, very well. Thank you very much. You know, it's a little bit over a year that I took over as CEO mm-hmm. of uh, Nordic Nanovector. And, uh, you know, we keep advancing with uh, our clinical trials, as uh, we have uh, been telling the, uh, the market. We had a very successful R&D day just a few weeks uh, ago. And I think that, you know, people are uh, hopefully as excited as we are on the uh, progress that we're seeing. You took over Tygenix at a time when the company had had a rejected FDA application and it looked pretty bad. And you picked up the company and really changed the focus. Why did you decide to move at that time? Well, at that time, I was the uh, CEO of Thelerix, which was a privately held uh, cell therapy company. And uh, we had met with uh, Tygenix a few times and there were some quite complementarities. We had a, a very nice pipeline based on uh, on allogeneic uh, adipose rife stem cells. They had a, at that time an approved product in Europe with uh, you know a rejected uh, uh, file in the US. And we just combined both entities and uh, continued to pursue uh, at that time, at the beginning, control select in Europe, while well, we were developing the adipose rife stem cell platform in other indications. So you move from an autologous treatment for knee replacement to an allogenic treatment for anal fistula and were acquired through the gastro team of Takeda. How did that process work? Well, that was that was a very uh, <laughs> as, as you I think that you you've been uh, somehow involved. That was a, a very long and, and difficult process. I mean, we had some difficulties on on Chondroselect and and I'm sure that we're going to be touching on some of the issues that I think that made Chondroselect an impossible uh, product to be successful in Europe to the point that we ended up taking it away from the market and having been uh, the first ever therapy product to to be approved in Europe with a new regulation to actually withdrawing the product from the market while we were advancing and it was actually you know once we got the uh, phase 3 data with uh, with Alofisel the product for uh, this complex perineal fistula in, in Crohn's disease that Takeda got really engaged and then once we got the product approved by the uh, European authorities, Takeda actually uh, pulled the trigger and, and acquired the company. Now, I had been following Tygenix since they'd had their f- the, they were the first approval under the ATMP, the Advanced Therapies Regulation in Europe. And on paper, it looked great. I mean, the idea that you could grow your own cartilage back and you could have your own rotator cuffs. You guys were starting to work on shoulder therapies and all sorts of things, and it looked really good. I know you'd invested in manufacturing in Memphis, Tennessee. You were going all in. You put all the chips on the table. And then when you didn't get FDA approval, you were only relying on European revenue. And in the final year before you pulled the product, your revenue was only $4 million. Now, one of the things that we have in Europe that a lot of people are unaware of is something called the hospital exemption. Do you think that that impacted Crondo Select and what you were trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. I think that hospital exemption is is the real reason why Crondo Select never 
became a successful product, sufficiently successful. It was never going to be, you know, a major uh, pharmaceutical uh, product in terms of revenue, but it was definitely a product that could have been uh, sustainable if it was not for the fact that, you know, with this hospital exemption in the biggest markets where these chondrocyte implantations were, were more established, we were just fighting against non non-approvable or non-approved products that we're selling for a fraction of the cost. Now, we keep bumping into folks in our work in the United States who are unaware of what the hospital exemption is. Can you just give us, from your perspective, what the hospital exemption is? Well, the, it was a, a loophole that was created when the uh, new AT&P regulation came into, uh, into work in, in Europe that allowed for products that had that were done on a one-by-one -one basis under the uh, you know direct prescription of a, of a doctor for a single patient, that could still be authorized at local level, and therefore you don't need to go through the whole approval process of, of a pharmaceutical product. Now the only issue is that then the the law was moving to the countries with the different wordings, and right. in some cases, you know, Germany probably being uh, one of the best examples, although Spain, where I come from, is, is also uh, <laughs> They're doing a lot guil of guil guilty as well. <laughs> um, you know, it, it ended up that they, they decided that every uh, autologous product was by definition uh, included in the hospital exemption. And therefore, you know, you could manufacture any autologous product in a hospital without going through the uh, same scrutiny as a product like Condroselegma. A lot of the basis of that rationale came from the 2009 Bustle court ruling where you couldn't patent genetic material and so an autologous product became quote-unquote unpatentable. But we're also seeing that then with a lot of the CAR-T therapies where you're hearing a lot of buzz in Europe where we're going to start having homebrew CAR-T. I mean, do you think this is viable for Europe? I mean, it seems to me that uh, there's a real issue here with these companies being cannibalized if you're trying to roll out products here. I think that any product that is autologous in nature is going to face the hospital exemption issue. And, uh, you know, that was part of what we were trying while I was uh, you know, also <laughs> president of EBE and tried to uh, convince that it was not, you know, a hygienics issue. It was, it was really a very serious issue that will have uh, very long-term implications. And at that point, we were already talking about CAR-Ts. And I remember, you know, talking to the uh, Joe Jimenez, which was at that point, the, you know, the president of FBR, yeah. uh, about the issue, saying like, you know... And, and the former, we should say the former CEO of Novartis yeah, as well. Yeah, former CEO of Novartis, of course, that, you know, they were investing heavily on this CAR-T. And I think that they, they thought that this hospital exemption is something that would go away or that will not affect uh, other products that are more complex. But we, we're seeing that there are people doing CAR-Ts. And, you know, again... Uh, a lot of the infrastructure costs in those hospitals are considered to be already paid for. Right. No one uh, puts them in, in the calculation of the cost of doing it in, in your hospital. So at the end, will people pay, you know, 300,000, 400,000 euros? Or would you use the infrastructure you have in the hospital to create your own home brewed CAR-T? You've never proved whether it works, whether it's safe. But you seem to be saving a lot of money to the hospital, so they will they will use them. And I, I see that happening. We saw some data at the first international CAR-T conference in Paris in February of this year. And there were several of the presenters from some of the academic institutions. And one of the trials in particular, I remember, jumped out at me because there were a lot of adverse events of the Category 5, which is those are fatal events. And looking at the data reminded me a lot of the rocket trial of Juno when they had the very bad Phase 2 that just went awry and had a bunch of patients who went fatal in the middle of the clinical trial, and they got shut down. They had to stop it and were since acquired by Celgene. 
the problem is there's no reporting. You can't find us. There's no documentation trail. There's no audit. There's no central procedure. It, it seems like we're creating a two-track system for someone like you who's trying to do it the right way and get regulation. I mean, how do you how do you see yourself in your new role going to compete with this stuff? Have you purposely tried to strategize a way out of that? Thanks, God. We have a, pro <laughs> a product that cannot be a homely brew uh, in, right. a, in, a, in a hospital. But I think that it's not that we are creating a dual track, it's that that dual track has been created. Sure. And the problem is that it's being used and no one is you know, shutting it down with what I believe are very bad excuses regarding costs. But I think that you know, safety of the patient comes first. There's been very serious adverse events associated with the use of these hospital-exempted products. And of course, they are not widely publicized because there's no one that is forced to publicize those uh, side effects. So. Unfortunately, this is something that unless authorities do something um, for it, we will continue to see. And, you know, as the products get more complex and the diseases become more uh, serious, we're going to see more and more of those uh, side effects and we're going to see some uh, serious side effect effects or we will not see them, but some piece patients <laughs> yeah, exactly. will experience them, unfortunately. You look at what's going on with the biotech companies in Europe and it's really hard. Tygenics is just one illustrative example where you couldn't compete on the revenue of Europe alone. You really need to have access to the U.S. market. Do you see a divergence emerging? Is this gap getting bigger between the market and the U.S.? in Europe from a biotech perspective? Well, I mean, if you look at the revenue of the compounds, definitely yes. So uh, the, the US is, you know, significantly bigger than, than Europe. One of my favorite topics is the fact that, you know, we keep talking about Europe like if it was one market. Sure. And, you know, for small biotechs, you know, Europe is still a collection of 27 authorities that you need to deal with and 27 reimbursement bodies. If you don't go into the uh, then the autonomous regions and things like that, so just sure. just on the at, at country level, so that adds a lot of complexity that makes also Europe uh, less attractive. And then there's all these other discussions that we had in the past about you know the European biotech ecosystem and whether there's enough funds for company to become sufficiently big to actually be world, worldwide players. And that, that is something that is still has not been solved. If you look at the top biotech companies or global pharma companies now, you look at AbbVie, you look at Gilead. I mean, these Celgene, Biogen, I mean, these are companies that 10 years ago didn't exist. They're new companies in Europe's not creating these sort of champions, these sort of mid-size, mid-cap, high-growth biotech companies. We did some research for you at EBE where we showed that 70% of all phase two acquisitions are now being done in the U.S. So the U.S. is gobbling up globally 70% of all phase two assets. What does Europe need to do to be more competitive then? Well, I think that is, is a huge gap in uh, capital between Europe and the U.S. If you look at the science and you talk with whoever, they will tell you that science in Europe is as exciting uh, as it is in, in, in the US, uh, UK, where we are today being probably a, a great example. If you look at seed capital, probably we do pretty well. Um, a, between, you know, also there's, there's a better system probably for grants and soft loans from institutions. And uh, seed capital from the, uh, from the VC's perspective, I think that is also, you know, uh, can almost compete with the US. I think that is when you want to go into the bigger rounds with VCs or you want to go public, that you know the difference in size of rounds and money available is astronomical. And, and you know, it becomes very difficult when you're running in competitive spaces because this is a, a worldwide industry, extremely competitive, and then you're trying to uh, do something with 30 million, what your competitors in the US are doing, trying to do the same thing with 150 million. Yeah. Guess what? I don't know who's 
better at using the money wisely, <laughs> but I can tell you the chances that you will go much faster and, and better with 150 million is there. So that becomes a, a real issue going forward. You don't necessarily need to be as wise with 150 million, I guess. Well, I think that they, they are not. They, they are probably as wise, uh, and, <laughs> but they have much more money, so that means that they go quicker and they go faster and, uh, and they, they, they can do more things with the same amount of money. So the company becomes bigger or they fail quicker, which again, is there's no bad thing in biotech in failing quick. The issues, you know, keeping the companies alive forever doesn't make much sense. No. But not having enough funds to really develop your technology to the point that you can demonstrate real value is, is, is an issue. And, and in Europe, you know, very quickly companies start trying to find partners simply because that becomes a, an alternative source of capital that otherwise you cannot get. So um, it's not an easy market for companies mid-size. What we saw from a research study in the University of San Diego where they looked at their cohort from 1990 to 2000, this was a study, it's an older study now, it's from 2011, 2012. But what was interesting when they looked at that biotech cohort, which grew so fast in San Diego so quickly, the number one indicator, you mentioned the IPL, what they found was the number one indicator of success. So the one thing that would be the best statistical predictor of the success of the company going forward was the size of the initial public offering. Hands down, that was the number one indicator. Is that why we're seeing so many companies such as you did with Tygenics, you did a public IPO, an initial public offer. Well, actually you listed here in Europe, but then you did a second IPO on the NASDAQ to cash up. Is that why you had it? Well, I think that if, if you want one day to compete and you want to create an infrastructure in the US and you know you need hundreds of million right and I think that the chances of getting uh, access to a pool of capital of hundreds of million of investors that understand what you're talking about when you're talking biotech is very small in Europe compared to the US so um, I think that you know even listing if I had a company today that was private I will go straight into the US I don't think that listing in Europe I think that is a painful step not always in the right direction. Do you think it just slows you down then? Well, it just creates an extra complexity because I think that is great at some point and it helps you uh, fund the company. I mean, it's like, we, you know, at Tygenics, we benefited from that. At Nordic Nanovector, of course, we're benefiting from, from it. But the day you want to do the jump, the fact that you are in another market, then it becomes a secondary offering. You already have in Europe, in the majority of cases, a huge uh, amount of retail shareholders, which makes your stock extremely volatile and then is perceived as riskier by uh, sophisticated investors it just makes life more complicated i'm not saying that is 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 bad <laughs> it's just more complicated yeah because a retail investor decides okay we're we're liquidating now they're doing another ipo all of a sudden your share price drops 15 20 percent overnight yeah and and you know people are are you know understand a little bit less uh, you know the ins and outs of biotechs and the fact that you know these companies need almost constantly a, an inflow of money because you know for a very significant number of years you're going to be uh, just uh, investing and uh, at the same time you need to understand that you know there's some ups and downs and there's some uh, bumps on the road and that doesn't mean that the company is going to derail it simply m means that you know okay you're going to take a little bit longer or this is not working very well but you know you need to have a more holistic approach of how the technology looks like and so well look at Avalinx because Avalinx had had a partnership with Pfizer Pfizer bailed out of the partnership their share price dropped by 60 70 percent you know but yet they were working on a platform they stayed 
at the platform. They had other investors come in. And then lo and behold, you know, four years later, they'd cut a $6 billion acquisition deal with Sanofi. Um, do you think platforms like that, sim- similar to what you guys are trying to do, you're trying to develop a platform as it is. Well, we have a platform, but I don't, I don't think that, again, there is a, a good model of whether you should try to develop a platform or you should try to develop a, an asset. I mean, being a, a single pony asset sometimes has... One shot of, on goal. It's, it's only one <laughs> shot on goal. On the other hand, there's a lot of... For example, in the US, there's a lot of sophisticated investors that are exactly what they're looking for because they don't want companies to, diverse, to, to diversify. They can do that by buying into several companies. So they, they take what they believe are good shots on gold and they will have, you know, 10 of those and, you know, some will miss, but some sure. will be uh, big successes. Well, if you end up trying to pursue too many things, sometimes you just spend a lot of money and suddenly yeah. you're not focused as much on, on the right asset. So there's arguments for not going. Uh, I think that a single pony company is, is a little bit riskier for non-sophisticated investors. In our case, it's, it's, it's a platform and we believe that it has you know opportunities on what we're doing. And as we've uh, explained on the R&D day, you know, also future opportunities going into other cancers out of, outside of the hematological space. But again, it's just finding the right investor for your opportunity. That's the key. One of the things we're seeing is a lot of discussion on price, and we're particularly from the U.S. side. The U.S. right now is responsible on average for 82, 83% of global profit margins in the sector. There's a lot of discussion now about putting pricing controls in the U.S. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office just priced one of the House and Ways and Means budgets, HS or HR3 from Pelosi. You're looking at a potential $70 billion, $350 billion five-year impact on the sector. From your perspective, what do you think that would do to the biotech sector where you are that's looking to work and maybe merger or at least get assets and move up the value chain? What do you think that's going to do for you if something like this gets passed? Well, I I think that it will make the life of our big pharma companies that are eventually looking into acquire companies like us uh, (laughs) be much more careful. I think that, you know, it changes the way. And I think that something, hopefully not as drastic as that, but something will will end up happening, and I think that this idea that you know you can keep pushing your prices up well above inflation every year, and you know most of the growth in some of these you know huge assets come actually from from uh, price increases, late late stage price increases in some assets. That's true. Uh, I, I think that on the other hand, you know, to look at the European market where the only thing that can happen to your price is that it will go down. <laughs> is also probably unfair. So I think that we need to find what is surprising we were discussing it before our call is, is that the the actual percentage of the total spend that is related to the products is pretty stable at about 12, you know. 11, 12, 13%. Yeah. It's remained flat. And know. and that over so many years. So at the end there's a huge amount of pressure on what appears to be the only thing that you can control which is the 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 drug prices. Yeah. But that is, you know, it's 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 peanuts compared with the overall uh, healthcare cost bill. And I think that it would be nice sometimes to see that there's more effort towards the other 88%. We've discussed Savaldi a lot, but the reality is when you looked at the total value that that drug created when you started looking at the removal of liver transplants and looking at all the complications from pegylate and interferon, which is a terrible drug, and all the you know the extra cost, one-third of the patients needed complete transfusions and bedtime and then full reactions and adverse events in the hospital, including cytokine release. I mean, it was terrible. Okay, Gilead maybe didn't handle it well, but the fact is, 
on the economic side, they were saving tons and tons and tons of money. We're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings just from that little pill. And the fact that it worked 99% of the time. Why do you think that's so controversial? I mean, the fact is, yes, it's expensive, but it saves so much money in, on total. I think that we're so bad at telling our stories. So bad. Even myself, I, which I've talked about this Ovaldi story, you know, only um, recently I saw a, a presentation that was an amazing presentation of, you know, the extra cost and then the deflation of the cost, including the Sovaldi. I mean, I think that people do not realize that that was an incredibly successful drug for a number of years. But, you know, you cure the patients. So once you cure the patients, the market disappears. <laughs> That's and, right. <laughs> and, you know, it creates a huge issue for the, for the, compa for the company that has created the, the asset, which, by the way, became extremely successful. And a lot of people made, made tons of money, which is great because, you know, you come with the right solution. It's good that you make a lot of money. But people think that is one of these drugs that is remaining at, you know, 15 billion drug forever and ever. And, you know, they did 15 billion. And the following year, they did seven. And the following year, they did two. And I'm making up the numbers. Of course, I haven't got a clue. I think but, it's know, 13, 11, yeah, 9. But, yeah, yeah, but, okay. but, but it's going down very quickly, simply because, you know, you're curing the patient. So once you cure the patient, you don't need that again. And I'm surprised that that story is not told better. And we will see how much value that product has created. And actually, what it has created is by eliminating a lot of those costs that you were uh, mentioning, it allows for other things to come into the bill because at the end you know the amount of money that we will probably spend on healthcare will be limited but if you eliminate a lot of the those extra costs that were coming with not much benefit now we can do other things. hospital beds yeah. you know just freeing up hospital beds not requiring liver transplants i mean the the, the efficiency gain it, it it seems to me that this is what people are missing when we're just we're just so laser focused on the quote unquote what um, Director General Hour called the immoral cost of the drug, and it's like, well, it's not immoral. It is just a cost, and it's cost based on what you can derive from the market on logic. Look at CAR T from the standpoint of a supply chain. What Novartis and Gilead, the two companies with products in the market, are dealing with now. You've got huge international supply chains. You're flying genetic material internationally to produce and manufacture and then fly it back. And it has to be gone to the patient, it has to be controlled at a certain temperature. I can't imagine what that cost to put together. And at most, you're talking 700 patients a year. That's mm -hmm. it for 700 patients in acute lymphoblastic leukemia. But it, go, it goes into the discussion on the orphan designation. It's one of the things that, you know, we want to have drugs for very rare diseases. The only way of having drugs for very, very rare diseases is for people that spend the time, the energy, and the money to try to come up with those solutions is to make money at the end. Right. As there are very few patients, they are going to be extremely expensive. And then we're unhappy that those companies are making money. If <laughs> you're not going to be making money, you will not be making the investment. So, you know, the whole thing is done, and the fact that it's being successful, all this discussion that is happening with the orphan drug legislation, hey, it worked. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it working. Work. It it's it's working. not that it, it, it is working. So maybe, you know, it's too much. I don't know. But let's make sure that we do not eliminate the, the benefit. And then we don't find ourselves 20 years from now because we've seen how long it takes to create an issue. That 20 years from now, we're like, but no one is investing in rare diseases. 
Of course not. And this gets to the Medicare Part D reform that we're working on in the U.S. The entire stated goal of Medicare Part D, when you go back and read the legislation and why they did it, was to try and inspire and push people to go into these more innovative sectors. We need more oncology products. We need more orphan products. We need these mechanisms. We don't want other Me Too cardiovascular drugs. We don't need another Lipitor. I mean, we've got one. Now it's going generic. We don't need it. You know, we need these other indications. And so the whole thing was built where when you fell into what was called this catastrophic phase of reimbursement above $5,000, the government picked up the tab. Okay, the taxpayer ultimately pays, but my God, it's been hugely successful at creating and spurring innovation in oncology and, you know, hematology and all these things in the U.S. And now we're complaining, say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> you know, we didn't, we didn't mean that. And you're right. There's incentives there. And now we're getting drugs and people are complaining. Well, I think that part of it is that maybe we need to have an even wider discussion on, you know, how much money do we want to allocate to healthcare rather than to other things? And again, there's this great idea that, you know, healthcare is, and I'm talking mainly Europe, but is for free for everyone, regardless of, you know, your age, your how healthy you are. It's like, well, I still think that there's going to be a part of it that needs to go back to the patient. You pay tolls to go into the best highways. You pay eventually money. You have a certain education, but if you want the best education, you may have to pay money. Of course, on healthcare, there's there needs to be a, a, a huge basic healthcare. Are we going to have the money to pay for every single genetic disease at millions per patient without devoting more money to healthcare? And again, maybe yeah. that's the solution. But what you cannot say is like, no, I want to restrict the amount of money that those companies with genetic products will make because then there's going to be no products for genetic diseases because I'm the chairman of a company that is developing compounds for hundreds of patients worldwide. And of course, from a regulatory standpoint, you need to have the same controls. You need to have the same clinical trials. You need to do... So it costs you millions and millions to get a product in the market. Now, once I get the product into the market, you want to make some money because otherwise, what's this? You know, you are an investor. It looks like the companies own the companies. The companies are owned by those retail investors that we were saying, you know, yeah. in, in my case, is these Norwegian investors. If Nordic Nanovector does very well, is the Norwegian retail investors that will make money. So they own the companies, not, uh, you know, it's not the company owning the asset and the, the company will be rich. No, it's not the company, it's the shareholders. And let's be realistic about this. I mean, the part of the reason why they're investing is they know that it could work, but they also are fully aware that nine times out of 10, it doesn't work. <laughs> and if you don't have that opportunity to get that return on investment, there will be no one willing to take yeah. the risk. Yeah, and, exactly. and this is the big question then. If we don't have individuals doing it, who do we expect to take the risk? Governments? Mm, not sure about that. Well, what we've seen is that governments do not take those risks. Again, I was given a few great examples. Show me and, you know, Germany before the reunification was a great example. Which good drug, which good company was created on the uh, old communist Germany? Not a single one. There was not IP and there was only government uh, research. Yeah. Nothing comes out of that because, you know, the amount of money and time that it takes to develop a drug, unless you have a profit at the end and you have investors, you will never make it. Which is why we're still seeing people willing to invest in Alzheimer's disease, 260 plus failures in a row and counting. That's a great example. You know, but, that. but people still are willing to take the risk. Yeah, because, you know, if it works. If. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's like... Thanks God. I mean, I, you know, uh, thanks God, we, we will not need them. But thousands of people will need those Alzheimer products. Do we want research to happen or not? Yes. So, 
you know, the day someone comes with a pill, we cannot say like, you know what, this is, they, they cannot make money. Because then no one is going to be investing on, on those uh, products. And it's a very difficult debate. I'm not saying that yeah. it's very simple. But I think that I'm surprised that there's no more debate on to how much money do we put into healthcare. Because, you know, the percentage of expenditure on healthcare is also flat for many, many years in uh, the developed economies. So maybe we should be putting more money. If it's an issue and we really want more products for more diseases, then maybe what we should do is put bigger budgets. But then the issue is like, what? where do you get the money from? Well, and this is what you're seeing in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is gobbling up and dominating a larger and larger and larger percentage of the global healthcare sector. I mean, you know, Boston 20 years ago, you know what Boston looks like now? It's a complete metamorphosis. The town's completely changed. It's gone from shipping and seafood to biotech. Yep. And that's all you see there. Literally on the sides of the public buses are advertisements for biotech companies. Yep. It's the only place in the world like that. And it wasn't that way 20 years ago. You know, again, one of the good things is that they decided that it was going to be one big hub, maybe two, if you, if you count on the West Coast as well. Well, in Europe, we've decided to create 27 <laughs> biotech hubs. Uh, guess what? There's no biotech hub. Well, Belgium's done, VIB has done extremely well. You know, there, there's some, but imagine if everything that we have, I know that that is impossible, but you know, this is almost like what has happened in Boston. There's companies in North Carolina, somewhere, but let's say that 50% of the companies are in Boston. Imagine 50% of the companies around London, around Brussels, around, you know, Switzerland, which, yeah. you know, you have Roche, Novartis. And again, you have the companies in Nordics. We have very good companies and we have great companies here in the UK. We have great companies in the Benelux area. You know, we have Galapagos, we have Uplinks, I mean, UCB. So there's good companies a little bit all over the place. But every region, every country has decided, no, we want to create our own ecosystem. So when you're looking for good professionals, when you're looking for the experience, when you're looking for a unified capital market to do these big IPOs, to have the investors, it doesn't exist. And yet... They need the biotech, they need the growth to fund their economies. I think that's the catch-22 that I think a lot of the politicians don't understand. If you don't have the economic growth, if you don't capture the late-stage value creation, what Europe's doing now essentially is de-risking technologies for the European Absolutely. VCs to swoop in and pick up. Absolutely. We're a great incubator <laughs> of ideas. We do the tough part. Yeah. We fail. 9 out of 10, and the 1 out of 10 that is successful is acquired by U U.S. investors that then make late-step money. O only 80% of the time. 80%. <laughs> uh, uh, fine. <laughs> if you look at the orphan designation itself, not phase 2, not phase 1, not market access, but if you look at the orphan designation itself, we built a statistical model that said with 95% certainty that it's actually the orphan designation within 24 months that drives the investment. And that's much earlier than in biotech, where you see really the large capital flowing in in phase two, where, you know, to make good with the venture capitalists. Does that make sense to you that you would expect the designation to be the main driver of an impetus of investment? I think that, you know, having an, an, an orphan designation does not transform that much the value. I mean, if you, but once you have an asset, you get orphan designation, it doesn't create a huge jump in your, your valuation. I think that it gives some comfort that from an IP perspective, you're going to be more protected. It also sends, I believe, a nice message to investors that indeed there's something in the data that looks interesting and that there's a real need in the market and that this is an unsatisfied market. It's also a faster pathway. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think that the 
it used to be also some more certainty regarding, you know, eventually pricing and reimbursement, so a shorter pricing and reimbursement discussion and eventually a higher price compared with a non-orphan product. But I think that, you know, five years down the road, we don't know how much <laughs> that would still hold. Speaking of five years down the road, what do you think are the biggest challenges that you'll be facing as a CEO of a biotech over the next five years? And how do you think we're going to need to solve them? I think that there are two things. One is going to still going to be the financing. And, and I thought sure. it's even in the U.S. that's still because, you know, the, there's thousands of companies there. So financing will still be a major concern or issue uh, for CEOs of biotech companies and ensuring that you have enough capital to do what you're supposed to be doing to reduce the risk of uh, failure is uh, very important. And the second one probably is going to be all these issues about pricing and uh, new pricing modalities, uh, how new pharmaceutical compounds are going to be paid for. Is there going to be annuities? Is it going to be payment for success? Which, you know, again, all of them are very, very nice intuitively, uh, even. But then but. you don't have the market. <laughs> you know, then then the authorities do not have the systems in place right. to implement them. So you go back to the, you know what, you're going to give me a discount and forget about all these complexities, which then makes the, the uh, acceptance on the pharma side much more difficult. Uh, I think that those two are definitely the ones I can think of will affect every single company. Eduardo, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. No, to see you. thank you very much for inviting me. 